We'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain." And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Lori. Good morning, Arcadia. How are you? All right. Uh, If you are new today, my name is Frank, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, Redemption Arcadia is one church with uh, nine congregations, and uh, so you're in the Arcadia flavor congregation this morning, and we welcome you. Um, Next week is Mother's Day. It's always a a special day around church, but uh, it's even going to be more special next week. I just want to give you a heads up. Uh, Next week, our founding pastor, Justin Anderson, is going to be in town, and he's going to be in Arcadia, preaching at Arcadia, both services next week. So uh, please be here for that. Uh, We love to cast vision as church leaders, but also as church leaders, we need to be keepers of the history as well. And so uh, it's our privilege that uh, Justin's going to be with us uh, next Sunday, and we're excited about that. We have four parables that we're going to be going through this morning, not just the parable that Lori read for us this morning, but we actually are going to go all the way to verse 34. So we have a lot of work to do. Fasten your seatbelts. And I want to just get right to the uh, big idea of these 34 verses. 
Um, you, you see the screen up there right now. Oh, you, don't turn around. You can see it right up here. You see the screen uh, right up here. Um, those of you that have computers, you may know that uh, some computers have these really cool things called programs. And so there's this program where you can put in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, and then it makes this collage of all the most important things in that passage based on the words and the grammar that's in that passage. And you can see that the two most important things are to hear and to hear what? The word. To hear the word. And then you see the seed and sown. Um, The sown relates to proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and the seed would be uh, God's word or the seed of the kingdom of God. So, Uh, It's very clear what Jesus is trying to do in these passages. Uh, In verse 3, at the very beginning of that first parable, the parable of the soils that Lori read to you, Jesus says, listen. And at the end of the parable, in verse 9, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This idea of listening or hearing occurs 10 times in these 34 verses. That's a lot. That means it's important. And again, as we've talked about, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, Mark likes to shadow Old Testament themes and ideas in how he writes his Gospel. And we believe that here he's shadowing the Shema from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, hear, listen, listen, God's people. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And let me just say this. You and I both know this. We admit this all the time. We stink at listening, don't we? I mean, we really do. Somebody just said, what? We, we stink at listening. We're very good at getting our message out, at talking. And I know some of you are like, well, wait a minute. You, you should talk. Well, yeah, I got the microphone right now for the next 45 minutes. That's cool. But all of us are like this. How many of you, how many of you you're in a conversation with somebody and your favorite person to talk to is a lip watcher? They're watching your lips, waiting for your lips to quit moving. They're not listening to you. They're just waiting for your lips to quit moving. Their eyes are focused right here, waiting for you to quit talking so that they can start talking. We just stink at listening. Listening is the most important function of communication, and yet most of us are just talkers. We're just talkers. Jesus says you need to listen. That's our big idea today. One word. You should be able to remember this. Listen. Listen. Let me give you a brief explanation of parables. We always need to do this as we get into parables. Uh, Parables are a pedestrian illustration of a significant truth about God or God's kingdom or both. It's a pedestrian illustration about a significant truth uh, about God. It's the, the word parable literally means comparison. It means to lay one thing next to another thing in order to compare the two and be able to clarify one of them. And so God and the kingdom of God are always being clarified in these parables that Jesus teaches. And Jesus didn't invent parables. A lot of people have that misunderstanding. Uh, Parables had been around uh, even before Jesus. There are some parables in the Old Testament. Uh, Other ancient orders used parables, but Jesus was prolific at using parables. It was, if not his favorite way of teaching, it was one of his favorite ways to teach. And And they're not always the easiest things to understand. Very often, Jesus had to explain uh, the parables. And Mark groups these four parables together because they're related and they're connected. We we don't believe that Jesus necessarily told these one right after the other, but that Mark has redacted them to be placed together so that he can tell a story. And so we look at the parable of the soils, the parable of the lamp, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard uh, seed. And, and, and since these are connected, we should talk about how they are connected. 
The first thing is that they are all kingdom of God parables. They're all illustrating what the kingdom of God is like. And the issues and the principles that Jesus is pulling out of these parables are these. Number one, the kingdom of God cannot be hidden. Number two, the kingdom of God will always produce life. Always produce life. Number three, the kingdom of God will always prevail. The kingdom of God will always be victorious. Number four, the kingdom of God will always produce results. And number five, the kingdom of God comes from very humble and obscure beginnings. The kingdom of God comes from a beginning that nobody would ever anticipate or even think was logical. And the reason that that's important to understand is that the kingdom of God never comes about by human effort. It's not our effort that does it. This is divine effort. It's divine intervention. These parables demonstrate the sovereignty of God. That is one of the overarching themes of these parables is that God is sovereign. God is in control. And it's a reference, if you will, to Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the the workers labor in vain. We do labor for and in the kingdom, but unless God is the one who is producing the results and, and working the kingdom, if He's not the one that's, that's being victorious in this, then we are working in vain. And, and these parables also have a couple of common pedestrian denominators, and they would be agriculture and light. Those were both significant daily issues that people interacted with back then. Uh, on the agricultural side, we need to understand that if they didn't grow something back then, they didn't eat. And unlike today, the way we have engineered and have great technology for ensuring that just about anything we plant is going to produce a harvest. They didn't have that back then. They were fully dependent upon outside forces, outside intervention to be able to produce a crop. They could plant the seed under the best conditions possible, and yet if they didn't have the conditions continue, at which they were completely uh, not in control of, they would not produce anything. And they didn't have electricity. We, we take electricity for granted today. So they had no electricity. So really, the only significant work that could get done was when the sun was up. They were on this 24-hour cycle. If you walked up to somebody from the first century and used the expression 24-7, they would have no idea what you were talking about. Imagine the, the change in culture when people decided and figured out that you, that you could do at least a little bit of work by candlelight at night. That was the beginning of the change of our 24-hour cycle and how we uh, view those things. And so we come to this first parable, the parable of the soils. And this parable is clearly a picture of the proclamation of the gospel, of, of sending out proclaimers of the gospel, which all uh, Christians are, in a sense, those who proclaim the gospel, but it's also a parable about the hearts of those who would or would not listen to the proclamation of the gospel. So the proclaimers of the gospel go out and they sow the word of God, the seed of God. They're sowing that by by proclaiming the gospel. And the soils in this parable are the varying hearts of the hearers. And who is it that tills the heart of the hearer? Is it the one who proclaims the gospel who is tilling the heart of the one who hears? It's the Holy Spirit 
who's tilling the heart of the hearers. And so as the proclaimer, you have no idea what's going on in the person's heart and how the Holy Spirit is working. And so by faith, we proclaim the gospel everywhere. You see that the sower is called to sow the seed extravagantly and, la- and lavishly and joyfully, which is completely at odds with the teaching of the Mishnah. That's the Hebrew teaching of the day that specifically told Hebrew farmers that they were to sow seeds sparingly with an eye towards caution and efficiency. You should never sow anywhere that you're not really sure that the conditions are the best that they could possibly be for yielding a crop. You need to take care of your seed and sow the seed sparingly. But Jesus blows that up. And the reason He does that is because sowing the Word of God is a joyful, lavish, and generous act for everyone to have a shot at. Even challenging soil gets to have a shot at the proclamation of the Gospel because the results are not up to the one who's proclaiming the Gospel. The results are up to God. This is about God's sovereignty. Our job is to sow. God's job is to convert the seed into crop. And then our job is to help shepherd those who are converted. And through the sower, the God calls and He begins the process of confronting those He has called and conforming those He has called into the image of His Son. There's that imagery that David Massey used several weeks ago that I keep coming back to. God calls us. But after he calls us, he, you have to understand, he doesn't just leave us where we are. He then confronts us where we are and says, you need to begin to change your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, after he's confronted us, he begins that process of conforming us to the image of his Son, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But we have to understand, I want to try to show you this parable through that image of calling, confronting, and conforming. And so that first soil, that hard soil, Jesus is calling, the proclaimer is calling, the seed of of God's Word is being sown, but it's hitting on people whose hearts are wrapped in spiritual Teflon. And so the seed is just clink, clink, clink. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is shadowed here by Mark. The hard-heartedness of God's people, the Israelites, and how they closed their ears to everything that God was trying to tell them. We have the same challenge today. People deciding that they are going to be absolutely closed to spiritual truth no matter what. I I know a number of atheists, as I'm sure all of you do. There was one that I knew um, a little while ago. I knew him really quite well. He's an avowed atheist. And I really love the guy. Funny guy. Great guy to be around. Always a party whenever he's around. But he's an avowed atheist. And you know why he's an atheist? It's really very simple. He is absolutely certain that he is right about everything and he doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any input. He doesn't need any counsel. He doesn't need any wisdom. He's got it all figured out and he's not shy about letting everybody know that he's the one who has it all figured out. And many of the circumstances in his life, is only, in his life have only served to affirm this because he's extraordinarily successful in business and he's published a couple of books. But what most people don't know is that his personal life is an absolute mess and he's done a nice job of being able to keep that hidden. Why? Because it might betray the fact that he doesn't need help in his life. That he's not God. That he is not the ultimate authority. That there is this part of his life that is completely out of control and he can do absolutely nothing about. There's a great uh, theologian named Kevin Spacey and he once said this. (laughs) 
It's not enough to have a good idea. The conditions also have to be right for people to hear. That's great theological truth. The hard heart needs to be tilled. It needs to be tenderized by the Holy Spirit. Our natural condition is hard towards God. Those of you who are here today who are believers and you call yourself a Christian, you need to understand that your heart was not always soft towards God. My heart was not always soft towards God. We come into this world with a heart that is completely hardened towards God and centered only on us. And therefore, you and I desperately need outside intervention. We need the sovereignty of God to act upon our lives. And then you go to the shallow soil. The shallow soil, the the word is received. The the, the person hears the calling of God and and seems to like it, but then almost immediately they get confronted with the realities of life. They get confronted with the fact that their life is going to change. These are the people that have a script about their lives, which we all have, and they refuse to submit their script to God's script, but rather they believe that God's script must be submitted to their script. And the minute God starts to change up their script in an emotional response, they say, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. This is not the way I thought this was going to work out. Jesus was supposed to submit to me. I've got a plan for, for my life and Jesus is, I'm going to put him in my pocket and I'm going to pull him out only when I need him to make sure that my script and my plan has worked, but I'm never going to submit anything to God. It's a very emotional response. This is, if you want a, a, a New Testament gospel reference, this is the rich young ruler who comes and hears, God, hears Jesus teach and, and he likes what he hears at first, but then Jesus says, okay, now we're going to have to mess around in your script. And he goes away. He walks away. And Jesus loved him, but he walked away. His soil was very shallow. Then you get to this soil that's very thorny. And so now the person has heard the calling of God and the person is okay with, with the, the, the confrontation of God and that there's going to be some challenges, but on this journey to conform to the image of God's Son, competing false gods, competing idols rise up in that person's life. They understand the Gospel intellectually they can even be wonderful Bible scholars. They, academically, they get God's Word and they can, they can tell you what it says and they understand what it means, but for them, there are competing idols in their life. And so their, their acquisition of wealth and success and power and influence and significance and all of these idols that you and I have in our lives, the idols for that person rise up and they submit to those idols rather than submitting to the Gospel ultimately. And they eventually fall away. But the the tough thing and the challenging thing about the person with this third soil, this this heart that is that that is that is succumbing to the to the false gods, is that they can look so much like a real Christian and they are around for they can last for decades and decades and decades. They put on a pretty good show. They've got the church thing all figured out. But in reality, all they're doing is is they're just really sort of trying to to adhere morality to their life and they're not really submitting to the true gospel message of Jesus. That when it comes to absolute conformity with the image of God's Son, they're saying, no, I still feel strangely better about these false gods which never fail to fail. Which never fail to fail. And they do look like believers. And one of the things we have to remember here is Jesus is teaching about the wide and narrow roads. We don't like that teaching. We, we, we want the wide road to lead to salvation. 
and lots of people are on it. That's not what Jesus taught though. He says, wide is the road that leads to death and destruction and many are on it. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And you look at this parable. There are four different types of people that are being talked about here. Three of them are not a part of the kingdom of God. That's the harsh reality of this parable. Three are not. Only one. Only 25% of the people in this parable are actually a part of the kingdom. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And so then you get to the good soil. This is the heart that's tilled by the Holy Spirit. This is the person who hears the call and is okay with the challenge of being confronted and then begins that process of, of conforming to God's Son. And Jesus talks about the crop uh, of this person. And, and he's, uh, it, let me, he says it's, it's 30, 60, or 100. Let me tell you something. The average crop back then was tenfold. If you had a tenfold crop, you were happy. If you had a 15-fold crop, that was rare, but it was also seen as an incredible blessing from God, and you, didn't have a, you had a celebration if you had a 15-fold crop. So when Jesus, again, Jesus says, sow the seed lavishly, they're saying, that's at odds with the mission. I don't get that. But then he's also talking about a crop that yields 30, 60, or 100-fold. Or, or that is goofy. That, that is surely an act of divine intervention. It's the only way that happens. It's the only way. No human effort could produce a crop like that. Only one who defeated death could do this. That's it. This is the one who has ears to hear. This is the one who listens. I'm going to mention this a couple times. Jesus uses the imagery of seed, and it's so interesting because seed seems so obscure and it's so small, yet Jesus was the seed who died and was raised to produce a crop of a millionfold. And we need to remember that the first three results are not the fault of the sower. Not the fault of the sower. We are called to sow the word everywhere we go. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 28. As you are going, as you are living your life, we're, we're called to sow everywhere. We are never called to decide beforehand about the preparation of somebody else's heart and whether or not they need to hear the gospel. We are to sow the gospel lavishly in all places. And then let me turn the question around here right now. We're talking about all those people so far. Let's talk about you and me. Which heart is yours? Which of these four hearts is yours? The most significant thing you can do with this message when you leave here today is really wrestle with which heart is yours. And the key difference between the good soil and the other soils is ears to hear. Are you listening? Those who listen are a part of the kingdom of God. Those who do not are not. Galatians 6. Paul writes in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap where you sow. You cannot possibly reap where you do not sow. And if you sow to your flesh, you will reap destruction from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit of God, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Here's what's very challenging, very difficult, and very confusing, and every one of us in this room needs to hear it. It's fascinating how many, and I just believe this is part of the human condition, it's fascinating how many of us are trying to get a harvest out of fields that we have never sown in. That's a problem, amen? 
I want to harvest over here, but I'm not going to sow over here. I'm going to sow over here and then expect that God's going to bless me and then I'm going to hear. Those who have ears to hear, those who listen, those who are sowing to the field of God, people who hear about God and, and the Gospel and, and the Bible but never ask any questions or legitimately investigate it, just dismiss it out of hand, think it's foolishness, they never look, they do not have ears to hear. The only ears that they have is for their own kingdom. That is it. If you don't understand the teaching of Jesus, if you don't understand the Bible, ask, seek, pursue, listen. But you're going to be competing with that human nature. Jesus speaks to this in John 8. Listen to this passage from John 8. This is, this is a, a dark passage that, that Jesus says he says why do you not understand what i say it is because you cannot bear to hear my word you can't bear to hear it you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Listen to Jesus. It's the best counsel you'll ever get. Listen to Jesus. Then he moves on very quickly to this parable of the lamp. Chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. Let me read you that. And then he said to them, a lamp is brought in to be put, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken from him. Uh, in the Old Testament, a lamp was often used as a metaphor for God. And so Jesus is saying, God's not going to be hidden. And therefore, you're without excuse. God will not be hidden. God is a lamp. You don't put a lamp under a basket or under a, a bed or under a table. A lamp is, to, is used to give light and to reveal. God will not be hidden and therefore we're, out, we're without excuse. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Look, if you don't believe in God, just look around you. It's pretty hard to deny the existence of something much bigger than you. But Paul also says in Romans chapter 1 that many people do look around and they see the clear evidence for God around them and what do they do with that? Paul says they suppress the truth. They press down on the truth. They try to cover it up. They try to hold it down. There is so much going on between this passage today and Romans. It's fascinating to me. We're, we're, we're suppressing the truth, but, but Jesus is saying ultimately God will not be hidden and therefore Jesus will also not be hidden. Let me just make this comment. You know, two, three, four weeks ago, a number of Christians have been executed in the Middle East and in, in North Africa. Do you understand what that says about the church and about Christianity? Jesus will not be hidden. He will not be hidden. I know, that's the ultimate price to pay to make sure that Jesus isn't hidden. I get that. And we live in a place that's buffered from most of that kind of oppression 
and suffering. But I need to tell you something. Scripture says that the fact that those Christians were murdered actually frightened their persecutors. It frightened their oppressors. Let me, I don't, I don't have a, let me read this to you. This is Philippians chapter 1. I want you to hear this. If I can find it. Philippians is in the uh, New Testament, right? Yeah, okay. Listen to what Paul says. I don't have a, I don't have a slide for this or anything. This is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. This is essentially Paul's thesis statement for the entire book of Philippians. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Isn't it interesting those Christians were lined up side by side? They were, they were striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now listen to this. This is a clear sign to them, the oppressors, the persecutors of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I know that's hard. We look at them being executed and murdered and I'm telling you, that's the last thing those persecutors wanted. They wanted conversion. That would not have been on the 24-hour news cycle, their conversion, but rather their execution. It's a clear sign to their destruction. The kingdom of God will not remain hidden. And Jesus will not be hidden. And He will not be restricted or conformed to being placed under a basket or a bed. And He won't be, he won't be poured into old clothing or poured into old wineskins as we've already heard in Mark The kingdom of God will not remain hidden. People won't always see it. People won't necessarily have eyes to see or ears to hear, but it is there and it will not remain hidden. God will prevail and one of the big ways that He will prevail will be through the bride of Christ as you and I love and serve and endure persecution. But verse 23 says that we also must pay attention to what we hear. There's that listening idea again. And really, this is also a lesson about how our faith, there's no such thing as a private faith. Culture wants us to keep our faith private and personal. That can't happen. Read the Old Testament. Read the prophets. Was their faith private and personal? No, it was not. It was loud, proud, and public, and it got him into a lot of trouble. They didn't ask for the trouble. I'm not telling you to go out and ask for trouble. Peter makes that very clear to us. Just don't be surprised when the trouble comes. Our faith needs to be public. It needs to be heard. And truth will eventually be revealed and win. And then I love the picture of how, how uh, Jesus uses light here. Light does many things, but there's three I just want to mention very quickly. Number one, light measures things. You understand that Jesus, is, Jesus said, I am the light, and Jesus is the ultimate measure of everything we do. The problem is, is that you and I never want to measure ourselves against Jesus, even though in Christ we have his righteousness. But instead, we're always trying to measure ourselves against other things to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And so we measure ourselves against other people. This is known as the social comparison process. It's very common. Every one of us can look around and find somebody who's more derelict than us and then we can feel good about ourselves. Well, at least I'm not that person. I'm obviously getting into heaven. 
And we may not say that out loud, but that's how we rationalize it. We, we view the idea of getting into heaven as the PGA Tour, and if you, if you can get in the top 72, you're in, you know? And all of us, it's called the self-serving bias, all of us are sure we're in the top half. There are no mediocre people in the United States. We're all above average, which is interesting mathematically. <laughs> and so we measure ourselves uh, against other people. We also measure ourselves against our intentions. You ever notice that? We screw things. Let me just speak autobiographically. You're getting too beat up. Let's beat up on me. I screw things up, and what do I do? I immediately go to my intentions. Oh, but my intentions were good. That's how we should measure the results of my derelict behavior is that my intentions were good. I only wanted what was really wonderful for me and I didn't want to hurt anybody else. But in my sin, I went ahead and hurt everybody. But let's not measure it by that. Let's measure it by my intentions. You see, I'm just a product of the 60s and that old animal song. I'm just a Lord whose intentions are good. Oh Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. I'm not a Lord, I'm a soul. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Anybody remember that song? Okay, yeah. Do you know what the context of that song was? He kept screwing up with his girlfriend and doing really, really bad things. And in the song, he's saying, look, I know it looks like I'm a bad person from what I've done, but here, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be. He's saying, God, listen to me. I'm not going to listen to you. That's what he's saying. We measure ourselves by our intentions as well. Jesus is the ultimate measure. We also measure ourselves by our causes that we get involved with. Well, I'm involved in this cause, and I'm involved in that cause, and I'm going to clean this up, and I'm going to fix that, and I'm going to help with that, and I'm going to send $5 over here. I'm going to buy a T-shirt and a bumper sticker. We love T-shirts and bumper stickers, don't we? All that is is morality. It's just morality. It's not the gospel. We need to remember Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The other, the other two things about light, second one is that it provides energy and growth. Jesus is the light. He's the one who empowers us and grows us up and conforms us into his image. He's the source of energy and power and growth. And then the third thing that light does is it reveals. Amen? We love to do stuff in darkness. We don't want our deeds done in the darkness to be revealed. Uh, I, this is a, an illustration from a long time ago. I was, I was a freshman at NAU. That's a school up in Flagstaff for those of you from ASU and U of A. Um, I was a freshman up at NAU in 1978. And uh, I, was, I was really working hard on the college life. I spent virtually every Friday and Saturday night at a place called the Latin Quarter. It was, a, it was, a, it was an old, dark, musty beer, ball, uh, beer bar uh, that had foosball. And so we would go there Friday and Saturday nights and, and I'd drink pitchers of old Milwaukee with the guys and we'd play foosball. Anybody ever been to the Latin Quarter? I don't know, some of you are like, oh, all right. All right, so anyway... One day, uh, late in the spring, my first year at N my only year at NAU, I was walking by uh, one morning, and the LQ was open. It wasn't open to the public, but they were open, and they were cleaning and doing some stuff, and they had all the doors and all the windows open, and I walked in there, and I saw what that place was actually like in the light. <laughs> I never went back. <laughs> and, I, and, let me, and hear me, I'm not a germaphobe, but that place was scary in the light. 
I never went back and touched another one of those foosball handles or drank beer out of those pitchers. It was, it was really bad. See, God brings light to reality. God's truth will always be revealed to us in Jesus and his word. There is, and, and as a result, there's no such thing as standing still in spiritual growth. God will continue to cast light on our lives. He will reveal our idols and our weaknesses, but it's going to take time. It's gonna, that conforming to Christ is going to take time. And again, verse 25, you see that, that, that idea of hearing and listening. And this, of all the verses here, these, the verse 25 might be the one that troubles people the most. It seems illogical and unfair that the one who has will be given more and the one who does not have will have even what they have taken away from them, right? We hear that and we, our social consciousness and awareness gets raised up high and we say, that's not fair. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this to to emphasize the importance of listening to God and God's sovereignty. He's saying the one who listens to God will gain understanding. And the more they listen to God, the more understanding they will gain. And the more they'll be given, the more they will gain. And the more God will reveal to them. The more you're listening, the more you're reading his word, the more you're praying, the more God is going to give you in revelation. But the one who does not listen... Even that which they think they have. I have faith in myself. I am the one who is wise. I have faith in my relationships. I have faith in my social network. I have, I have faith in my career. I have faith in my education. Even that which they think they have, eventually that will be taken away from them and they will see the fall, fallacy of their false god. We move to the last two parables. These last two parables are all about the surprising results in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God grows in ways that you and I can't imagine, especially with its humble beginnings. And understand the humble beginnings are a dead guy on a cross who rode a donkey and had a ragtag group of disciples that were known as idiotas. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples were described with the Greek word idiotas. I'll give you one guess what English word we get from that word. They were idiots, uneducated. Look at that next one, the, uh, verses 26 through 29. Jesus says, And he said, The kingdom of God is, if, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it to the sickle because the harvest has come. Such an interesting choice by Jesus to use something as banal as seed to describe something as glorious as the kingdom of God. And it is God who causes the growth in the kingdom of God. And the irony is that you and I labor in and and labor for the kingdom of God. We're called to do that. But we must understand that the growth and results always come from God. We're in charge of being obedient. That's what we're in charge of being obedient. God is in charge of the results. In other words, here's a bumper sticker for you. Fruit happens. That's the way it works in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Fruit happens. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Listen to what Paul writes. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. You hear that? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. 
You are God's field, God's building. Again, fruit happens. We need to remember that. People constantly want to try to bottle spiritual growth, and I just don't see it. There's no guarantee for, uh, guaranteed formula or methodology for spiritual growth other than just listening and being with Jesus. That's it. That's my book on spiritual growth. Listen, be with Jesus. The rest is up to you. And fruit will happen. Now, of course, Jesus always has a complete presentation of the kingdom of God. There will be judgment. There is not a kingdom of God without separating the the crop from the chaff. That's that sickle imagery in verse 29. He's separating the wheat from the tares. That will happen. Judgment will come. And then finally, that last parable, the mustard seed, verses 30 through 34. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God to what parable, uh, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This parable is about the time it takes to grow and the contrast of the small beginnings compared to the unbelievably large result. This is a very small seed. It's an unimpressive plant for weeks and patience is required. Patience is required. The problem though is that we're all Jack Bauer. You ever notice that? Every one of, we don't carry guns. That's not the reference I'm making, but we're all Jack Bauer. We want growth now. We want results now. We want perseverance now. We want maturity now. We want patience now. Chloe, now. That was his favorite word if you watched that show. Now. We're all Jack Bauer. The parable, though, reminds us of that Greek word, hupomene. Patience, endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. It reminds us of Eugene Peterson's long obedience in the same direction. That's what we're called to. But the parable also emphasizes this idea of unimpressive beginnings contrasted to the resulting supremacy. Jesus, for most, is very obscure and insignificant, and yet he has grown into this bride. For 2,100 years, he has grown this bride, the church, into billions of people, literally billions of people. No one could have ever imagined this. Could you imagine standing there at the cross looking at Jesus going, you realize that in 2,100 years this thing is going to be all over the world and billions of people will have come. They would have said, you're on crack, man. That's not going to happen. That's just not going to happen. I love Adolf Shatler says this, what appears to be the smallest is nevertheless the greatest. In that which is hidden, the foundation of a work is laid that will encompass the whole world. This this parable is also about appearances. The kingdom of God will not be ushered in, as many think, with great pomp and circumstances. In other words, don't look for the impressive, look for the substantive. But you and I, we're too attracted by by, by those things that please our eyes, by the glittery and the glitzy. We're we're too attracted by, by the impressive. And instead we get fooled. We think that if something is impressive looking, it's going to be substantive. That's not always true. In fact, it hardly is ever true. The kingdom of God is about being substantial. 
but it comes from very ordinary pedestrian packages like clay jars. Some of the most significant mustard plants I know don't look like much according to world standards. Some of you know uh, one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, he was here in March to speak to us. And, um, and, and Tom tells this story, so I don't feel bad telling it, okay? But this is a great example of what we're talking about. You've seen Tom. He's, he's vertically challenged. He's, um, he's got all kinds, he, he's slow moving. T- you know, you look at him and you just go, really, that guy? That's the way the world looks at things. About 10 years ago, uh, he was called to speak at a very large conference. As it used to be called to, to a lot of these things when his health was better. And he was called to speak there. And, and as he got off the, uh, as he was coming out of the, uh, the airport, there was a guy there that with this, you know, the sign said Tom Schrader. He didn't know what Tom Schrader looked like, but he was a part of the church, so he was holding up the sign, Tom Schrader. And so Schrader walks up to him as the guy's looking past Schrader, and he goes, "I'm Tom Schrader." And he he looks, he's really, yeah, I'm Tom Schrader. Okay, so they get in the car and the guy starts asking Tom all these questions and Tom, there's kind of an edge to these questions. Finally, Tom says, what, what's going on? What, why are you asking all these questions? He goes, well, I, I really heard that you, you were something. You just, you're not what I expected. And then he said, you really don't look like much. He said that to him. And he's the guy that was coming to proclaim we are so cowed by the impressive and not the substantial. You understand that? That's a big deal. Tom is a mighty mustard plant. And I know, he doesn't look like it. I get that. Don't look for the impressive, look for the substantive. That verse 32 I have to mention too, it's a beautiful picture, the birds nesting. Common Old Testament image was that uh, uh, was, was used when they talked about birds nesting in a tree or in a plant. It was, it was the idea that, that all people will find rest and shalom in God if they listen. Jeremiah says this, out of the most insignificant beginnings, often invisible to human eyes, God creates his mighty kingdom which embraces all peoples of the world. So why would Jesus have to explain these parables? Well, Explanation of God's word has always been helpful, even necessary. So don't hold the disciples to a standard that we wouldn't hold ourselves to. But also, it's very important to notice that for the 10th time here at the end, Jesus says, you need to listen. You need to have ears to hear. And so I ask you, are you listening? Do you have ears to hear? How is your heart? Is your heart wrapped in spiritual Teflon or is the Holy Spirit melting your heart and cleaning that wax out of your ears? Let me put it all together with this by talking about this one last word that we all don't really like in our culture. It's the word obey or obedience. That's become a dirty word in our culture. But it's an important word in, in God's word. It's, it's the Greek word. It's a compound Greek word. It's hupakuo. The word akuo, we get the English word acoustic from that. It means to hear or to listen. And hoop means under. So obedience is literally listening under. It's the opposite of parakuo. Para means, means around. That's the word that we translate disobedience. You're going around what you're supposed to be listening to. Obedience is a product of good listening. And those who listen receive the gospel. That's Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. That's the gospel. And the gospel transforms us. It's the grace of God redeeming the man or woman of sin, but we need to be able to hear it. 
The gospel takes those who fall short of the glory of God and gives them the glory of God. That's the gospel. And as a result, obedience comes into our lives. Obedience to God, obedience to Jesus, obedience to the gospel. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Not obey as a harsh dictate or burden, but within the context of the gospel, we listen under with joy and gratitude. We listen under to his teaching, his wisdom, and his truth, and that guides us in this process of becoming conformed to him. Obedience is a joyful response to the gift that we have of our salvation. It's not a grudging duty because we have to. Many of you, I know this for a fact, many of you are big fans of that television show, Parenthood, that started in 2010. How many watch Parent? Oh, come on, you're just not admitting it. Okay, I know you are because I watch your Twitter feeds, all right? I see what's going on out there. You know, that show was actually based off of an old movie. I can't believe I'm saying this is an old movie. It was a movie from 1989. It's really old. It was a movie called Parenthood with Steve Martin, Mary Steenburgen, um, Rick Moranis, Jason Robarbs was in it. Ron Howard directed the movie. And I remember there was a scene uh, in the last third of the movie. um, uh, Steve Martin played Gil, and he was just this harried, frustrated, exasperated, tired parent. And, and they were running around doing something and, and his wife, Karen, Mary Steenbergen, finally gets frustrated with him and says, come on, Gil, we have to go. And I'll never forget this scene. Gil, Steve Martin, he just stops and he turns around, he drops everything that's in his hands and he just looks at her and he says, my whole life is have to. That's religion. That's morality. That's living your life out of burden and duty. The gospel's message is get to. We get to. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, and open our ears to the truth of your word. And I pray that the seed would land on soil that's tilled by your Holy Spirit. So I call, I cry out for the Holy Spirit to come now and till our hearts so that we might hear you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.